Hey listeners, all I have to say is, wow, do not miss a single moment of today's interview with the great Niall Rogers, super funky guitarist, super producer, and super huge influence on myself. Dream guest, top of the list, can't believe he's finally on the show, and it's brought to you by Blue Microphones. Blue has been making microphones for 25 years now, and today they are the mic of choice for millions of musicians, podcasters, creators, guitar players, producers, and you need one in your studio. Whether you're just starting out or looking for a new color to add to your bouquet of studio microphone colors and your mixes, you can find the perfect microphone at bluemic.com. What's up? How do I begin to describe how much stuff has happened in the last two weeks in the world of guitar, at least in my little world, but also in the world in general? First of all, this pandemic continues, but, you know, I play with Jefferson Starship. We played our first concert since lockdown, a drive-in concert put, put on by Autosonics Concerts in Orange County, California. People driving in. It was a lot of fun. Drummer Donnie's like, everybody turn on your hazard lights. That was rather beautiful. People honk their horns to applaud. A lot of people with convertibles are sitting on the back seat, you know, sitting up on the trunk. Or some people have lawn chairs. They're out there drinking and it's pretty mellow. Fun, but a little bittersweet because of the situation that we are all in. But bittersweet doesn't even begin to describe the emotions today as we do this episode 125. I'm Jude Gold, and I don't know about you, but it's really hard to conceive that we are all on a planet now without Eddie Van Halen. That loss, well, that would require a whole separate episode, which I'm planning to do as a dedication to the man. I've been busy with dedications for the last 10 days, writing articles. Most notably, I wrote a huge appreciation of Eddie Van Halen in the next Guitar Player Magazine, or at least the one that's called the Eddie Van Halen Tribute Issue. Matt Blackett wrote the other big story, probably what would be considered the cover story, and it has lots of interviews with great guitar players discussing Mr. Van Halen. Like many guitar players who learned to play guitar in the 80s forward, Van Halen is just a huge, huge influence. In fact, my mom told me upon hearing the news yeah, I remember Jude, it was, uh, Van Halen was really big for you in junior high and high school. That's how you know what your influences are. Ask your mom, hey mom, who, who are my influences? She said, I also remember you were really into that guy from Texas. She was of course talking about Stevie Ray Vaughan, who I saw multiple times. I saw him as a freshman in high school with my elbows on the stage. I could have touched his cowboy boots. Saw that same exact sort of show a year later and then he started playing bigger venues. But I said, oh, do you remember my first Guitar Hero mom? The one who made me want to get my first electric guitar? I wanted it to be a Stratocaster, but that would come a few years later. She said, no. I was like, Nile Rogers. She's like, who? I said, okay, well, let me sing you one of his songs. And I sang for my mom on the phone this song. And of course, she remembered it. Niall Rogers is one of those guitar players that, even though he's so well known, if you happen to think you haven't heard him, well, you are so wrong. You have heard him. Yeah, he produced David Bowie. He produced Duran Duran's biggest records. He produced Like a Virgin by Madonna in excess. He just won a bunch of Grammys recently with Daft Punk. Talk about incredible resurgence back into the limelight, top of the charts, like 40 years later. Stevie Ray Vaughan, he helped invent rap music, or at least he had one of the most influential tracks of all time. That was borrowed by the Sugar Hill Gang when they had the first major rap tune that I remember, Rapper's Delight. See, I am Wonder Mike, and I like to say hello. To the black, to the white, the red, and the brown, the purple, and yellow. And I have always heard his music in other bands' music too. Like me and Adam Johnson, who often helps me with these shows. My good friend. I know he loves cake, and so do I. But when I hear this... 
I love it, and I also think it kind of sounds like Nile Rodgers. Nile Rodgers and the bass player from Chic, Bernard Edwards, those early days, they created a whole bunch of early hit songs from like We Are Family to Upside Down by Diana Ross. And when we opened today's interview with Niall, I think I play for him kind of an updated little version of the, of his upside down lick that he played and wrote for Diana Ross. Honestly, I hear Bernard Edwards bass and Niall Rogers guitar in this great song we all love. And getting to talk to Niall about some of these production moments, like when he created Let's Dance for David Bowie, is just amazing. The way he transformed what was given to him into the song that it became. And Niall, of course, is much more than a funk artist. Here's a new song he did with the Acoustasonic Stratocaster from Fender. talking about that guitar and then we're just gonna go with the flow and it's really incredible to me like I said the top two guests that I wanted on this show were Niall Rogers and Eddie Van Halen so I guess today well we have my number one guest that I always wanted on here because Eddie is gone and wow will he be missed and yeah he was just such an incredible influence and I can't salute him High enough. I just tip my hat to Edward Van Halen. Just the light that he showed. I mean, he showed us all that. If you have a, s a sound in your head, you can make it happen. You can make it real. Just stop at nothing. You can bring the coolest sound out of your ears and into reality. This show, of course, is brought to you by Blue Microphones. Can't thank them enough for bringing it to you. They've been making mics for 25 years. Some of their mics, like the Yeti and the Bluebird, are practically everywhere. I'm using the mouse, which I really dig. You can find blue mics in the top recording studios to, you know, project studios, YouTube studios, guitar studios like this one, because blue mics are really a great way to improve your mixes and your productions. Even if you're just starting out or you're looking for a new flavor for your studio to upgrade your mixes, visit bluemic.com, click get started and find the perfect mic for you. All right, let's head over to Niles home studio, which I do believe is in Connecticut, but I didn't even really ask him. So it'll be a little bit of a long ride. And he's got an engineer there too, which is cool, just recording for him. So all he has to do is chill and play that Acoustasonic Strat. We are rolling? Yep. Fantastic. Talking to one of my two favorite guitar players ever. And that's no joke. Well, let me show you what I was playing just now. <laughs> yeah, you know. <laughs> You've been an influence on me. You're, I mean, I played acoustic guitar, but when I heard Le Freak, I had to grab a Stratocaster. I've been in love with Fender Stratocaster ever since. Ironically, though I wanted one with a bar, I ended up with a 74 Fender hardtail, yes! kind of like your hit kind of like your hitmaker Strat that you wrote all your songs on. So I, I didn't realize that later and I was like, "Wow. I got the right guitar for me, right. even though I have a million guitars with bars." And now, we've come full circle. You're playing an amazing acoustic guitar today. Probably a good place to start. Maybe you want to show us this guitar that I've only been lucky enough to play at NAMM and a few other people's houses. Right. And I want to get my hands on one of those. Acoustasonic Stratocaster. Right. So for, wow. so for me, what's what what I'm really digging about this is that 
it came into my life completely by accident, which I love. <laughs> right? So that meant that I didn't know anything about it before. And I was left sort of alone to discover. Um, and because mainly what I play when I'm uh, just playing, I, I play jazz. That, that's all I play. I don't practice rock and roll. That, that I just feel when I'm playing. Um, but when I'm playing jazz, and I even, I'm not even sure I even like that word now, jazz. But, but that style of music, um, it's because I feel like I'm learning more and more and more about the instrument and what I can do on the instrument and what I can't do and what I'd like to achieve. So typically I'm not playing with an amplifier. I'm just playing acoustic. Yeah. And when I got this guitar, which came into my life by accident, I realized that I had something I could now practice in my room and I could practice the things that I really think I need to work on, which is, you know, just playing cleanly. Also, you know, as I get older, I get concerned about my ability to keep my speed, which most people don't really hear me play fast because that's not the music that I do commercially. But I love being able to go and jam with guys like Steve Vai. And, and I love being able to stand next to him and hold my own. You know, like it's like they go, oh, and no one ever makes me feel like right. you don't belong up here. You know, it's like, no, dude, let's go. <laughs> And I'm always open. Right. I, I'm always open to somebody smoking me, which is fine. That's just fine with me because I feel like, <laughs> okay, well, you pull out that ammunition. I got some other ammunition that you have not heard me play, which I'll whip out. So it's always just fun to me to play and learn. And because I like to walk around with the guitar, I want to hear it. <laughs> and I want to hear it, you know, sounding like. So I'm. You know, it's like I love hearing that sound. I love hearing that vibe in the room. So the Acoustasonic just did that for me. Now, here's what's really weird. So now I have this axe and I'm fooling around with it. It's in my hotel room next to my hit maker. But I don't practice on the hit maker. I, I, I play, I perform on the hit maker. I don't practice on it. But I met Abbey Road and I met a songwriting camp and the guitar arrives and I got the thing and I just started playing it on like every record, every song that we were writing. And it just became a tool that I was writing with. And then, you know, we go along and we're doing our gigs and we're leading our normal lives. And then all of a sudden, boom, we're hit with the pandemic. And now we have to leave all of our gear on the road because we're opening for share. And when we finish our set, our gear goes in the truck first and her 100,000 pounds of gear comes after us. So we can't get our, our gear until like, my stuff just arrived here at my house uh, about a week ago, a week and a half ago. And it's Came been- over on a boat or something? <laughs> yeah, well, it's been sitting in like Las Vegas since the beginning of March. Our last gig with Cher was like somewhere at the beginning of March and that's it. So a lot of stuff that was in my normal life um, but what I was able to do was I was able to carry my hit maker because I carry it everywhere I go and the Acoustasonic because it's light as a feather. I love light guitars. So I was able to bring two guitars home. And I was gonna say, it's still shaped like a Stratocaster. It's like it feels Correct. like it's such a, like it's really is like hand candy. You hold it, it's like this weighs nothing and it feels like a Strat and has all the curves where you want them to be. And, and it's pretty neat. Yeah, so you're describing it perfectly, but the reason why it was such a great tool for me was because I knew I had a wonderful practice guitar, right? And I could take it home. <laughs> Cher could keep all the other stuff, but I could take my hit maker and this. So I could actually yeah, carry yeah. two guitars at my age, and it was yeah. no problem. And um, so then, you know, I started writing with it, and one of my favorite people to write with uh, is Philippe Sace. And we were talking about how we were all frustrated because we were now living inside a box and we couldn't gig together, we couldn't jam together. And then we started saying, well, wait a minute, let's, let's just back and forth gig. Let you do, uh, you, you know, write a motif and then let me expand upon that, you know, let me like take it to another level. So 
Philippe wrote uh, do beep do 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 scoop boop bop do bop bop do bop go ding do 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 boom conk do boom conk do 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 something like that, and then I started playing it. And then, <laughs> so we developed this whole composition. I start playing the melody in four-part harmony. <laughs> and it nice. develops into this whole thing. <laughs> what, what happens is that we're in discussions with Fender because I had heard a rumor that they were going to discontinue the amp that I use. And I'm a tenant speaker guy, right? So I'm like, oh, whoa, wait a minute. I'm like begging, please don't, no, no, don't stop making DeVille's like, or like make 50 of them and I'll buy them all. It was, you know, like, so now I'm talking to Fender, we're developing a relationship. And, and what's really cool is that because after developing the relationship with the custom shop and them doing the hit maker, I found that it was okay to ask for favors and just see how far I could push the envelope. So I'm like, oh, well, look, don't stop making the amp and blah, blah, blah. And then we were talking about a production version of a hit maker and, uh, you know, consumer priced version. And so we're actually just... There used to be a custom shop version correct. available of the hit maker. But they all sold out. One available. Yeah, one, one for the masses. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, so the fa uh, what I'm really trying to say is that so I didn't have any problem begging and I didn't have any problem just saying, please, 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 please. And then at the same time, Philippe and I just happened to be working on this composition. So we think that we get it down and, and these things just converge, right? So we're talking to the, the higher ups at Fender, if you will, and Philippe and I are developing this song. And then my, my engineer slash sort of like, you know, production kind of partner, you know, he gets the, the, the manual, if you will, on the, the acoustic and said, hey, it does this, and it does this voice combination, it does this, and I go, uh-oh, and we had already written the song, so now I went back and started to reinterpret it, doing what he was telling me that the guitar is supposed to do. <laughs> so he says, in yeah. this position, it does this, and so I went into that position, and then I started to play the head, and I said, oh, man, he's right, it actually does do that, so then I re- voice the way that I played the head and and because it responded well supposedly in that position to harmonics I realized that well because it was in a certain key the accidentals in that key didn't favor you know like playing the kind of harmonics where you that type of harmonic you had to do the you know that kind of you know the that mm -hmm. thing so I then said, okay, well, let me get a little technical about it. And I just reapproached the song by doing the things that he was calling out that the guitar could do, which I never even thought about until he read the manual. So last night we came up with this sort of joke, which was, you know, guys, when you get something new, read the damn manual. Because <laughs> guys, well, we like get, most guitar players, right? Guys, we get gear, right? We just start going at it. We, we don't know. We can't figure it out until oh. like a few months into it. What are some of the things that it does that you're talking about, these different modes that you discovered from the manual? Oh, I don't know, because Russell was calling him out. Yo, Russ. Yes. Can you hear me? What's up? So he was saying, what are the different things that the Acoustasonic does? And I was saying, like, well, Russ was just calling it out. Like, you probably don't have it memorized. I, I, no, I, I, I basically had to memorize it to be able to do that. So, oh, really? So first position, what you would usually think of as the bridge pickup, right. is the electric models. Right, okay. And one of the voices, if you turn the tone knob all the way one way, it's the clean. Right. And if you turn it all the way the other way, it's the overdriven, and you can blend between them. 
Right. So when he was saying this to me, while I'm now replaying the composition, he would say, did, did, were you able to hear what he just said? Yeah. Okay. So he would say something like that to me, and then I'd go to a certain part of the composition and play it knowing that that's what I was going after. So at the parts of the song where it's a little bit crunchier than my normal type of sound, I was just experimenting. He would say that. I'd say, okay, let me play this part, and I would do it like that. And then he would say, well, go to this pickup configuration in these voice settings and it does that and then I would think of the appropriate part of the composition which prior to that I believed was finished <laughs> I reinterpreted it all along the way and the only part that I really just sort of blow free is when I get to the part where I solo because that 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 part it's it sounds and it feels like a jazz box to me and that's what I wanted my solo to sound and feel like so that part he didn't start calling out I, I just All right. we are talking about inside the box yeah I'm talking about inside I'm sorry yes just double checking just double yeah, yeah so at that part I just solo I just played through that part and, and solo is the only spot where we have it amped so at that point um, we realized that we could even do more if we spent more time but we didn't spend more time. We just were just, you know, doing that thing on the fly and having fun. That's how music's supposed to be. And there's also a great video if people want to check it out on YouTube. Nile Rogers inside the box. Man, congratulations on your new guitar. And um, it would be remiss of me not to talk a little bit about your style because the thing I know about you is people think they understand how to play like Nile Rogers. Mm -hmm. But you've told me you walk into a bar sometimes and you see somebody playing Le Freak. And you're like, that's how you think I play it? Could, could you maybe show me a, the difference between maybe how somebody might play it and how you actually play it? Well, the thing is, is that I, what makes music fun for me is, is interpreting and reinterpreting all the time. Like I never play the song the same way twice, but the, yeah. Uh, so the, also, the other thing that's really important and I never really get a chance to talk about is my recording technique is completely different than my live playing technique. Uh, when I record, I record uh, with the volume very, very low. And, and, and that's an important part of the style of the songs you know, that you hear on the record because I'm trying to blend with the other parts that I know that I'm also gonna play at some point in time. So the Freak on the record is really, and this is, this, you know, unfortunately I'm gonna play it live, so I'm gonna do my live technique, which is like. So you, you hear the ghost notes, right? You hear. Yeah. And the reason why I like to do that is because when I'm when I'm ghosting and I'm doing I get the freedom to go I can get as weird or yeah. as in as I want, but it still sort of sounds musical. It's so like that chucking ghosting gives me the ability to to like like every time you hear us play it live it's always different like my intro sometimes i'll be really jazzy and go crazy but i always keep it sounding in um so the freak has that part but what makes it work on the record is the fact that i'm also going right so i'm going the lick that way sometimes in a single string manner or as an overdub or on, it's on the record within the main lick yeah on the record it's like that it's continuous it's so it's the single note as well as the because the brings that out it's in there so i can go yeah. or anyway so that that way when you're listening to the record sometimes i'm a little bit more disciplined because i'm making a record but a lot of times, like a good example of the semi-undisciplined Nile is like, get lucky. So you hear the one part, that's the main part, but the other two parts that accompany it um, are 
to make the chuck stronger, just like that single note part is to make the chuck stronger in Lafrique, but it's also to add a little melody to get lucky, you know? So you, you have the... I'm gonna play it super simple. Now, I don't play that at all, but, but you know, I'm, I'm playing like... You know, I, I'm not really doing that all the time, but those type of events will happen in the course of the linear journey. But I'm also going... Very much like Lafrique. That's an overdub? That's an overdub. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so this is what I did not know. So you're saying in Lafrique, there's a little overdub. Oh, absolutely. That's why the groove feels like that. Can't, that groove, if I only played one guitar, it would not feel like that. And same thing with Get Lucky. If I only played one guitar, it would not feel like Get Lucky. I did not know that. But I mean, on Get Lucky has a lot of parts. Like one of my favorite parts too is the vocoder breakdown. You know, it's like, all right. Right, exactly. It's exactly. one of the funkiest moments. And that's one of the funkiest moments in recent pop history. And also one of the greatest roaring returns to the front of the charts, top of the charts that I've ever seen in pop history was when you guys came out with that. It, it shocked the hell out of us. It was like unbelievable. We could, we were like, "Whoa, really?" Yeah, that's one of the biggest hit songs of the year. So that must have been quite wild too. And and what I loved about it is it harkened back so much to the chic sound. I almost felt Bernard Edwards' presence in the room on that. So you know the story behind that. It's so great you said that, man. Uh, when we we did it, we recorded that at uh, Electric Lady, and uh, and I said to Thomas. I said, yo, man, you know, you're, you're actually standing exactly where Bernard was standing when we cut D Dance, 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 Yowza, Yowza, Yowza. And they flipped out and they went, you recorded Chic at Electric Lady? I said, the first song we did, yeah. We did the very first song there. The rest of the album we did at the Power Station along with all of our other recordings. But the very first single uh, was done at Electric Lady and we were right there. Bernard was standing wow. there. I was sitting here. My amp was go boat off. Yeah. And... Tony Thompson was like in oh actually it wasn't even Tony on that one. Ooh, sorry, ooh Nile. Uh Tony didn't play on Dance Dance Dance. That was some that was uh Jimmy uh right. Jimmy Young. Well, just since we're gosh, I mean, you know what? I as incredible as Bernard is, I feel like he doesn't quite get enough respect. I mean, there without Bernard Edwards, there would be no another one bites the dust. There would be no Queen. Nile Rogers without Bernard Edwards. There'd be no Nile Rogers. Just I mean, I don't know about him that much, or the world doesn't know. Well, tell us a little bit more about Bernard. What was he like, or how did he inspire you? Or He, he had the most amazing technique of any bass player that I had ever seen, honestly, um, until I started to hang out with Jaco Pastorius, who, believe it or not, was enamored with Bernard's playing. So many chic gigs, we'd sit, you know, we'd stand on the side of the stage and we see, you know, guys like, you know, the, the you know, the brothers Johnson would be there and, you know, and uh, and Jocko and all the cats that we know would wind up becoming great friends because Bernard is a mega bass player. He was ridiculous. And the thing is, is that see, Bernard started out as a guitar player, and uh -huh. in the band that he was in, when the bass player was injured because they had two guitar players bernard started to play bass but because he started playing guitar first he was accustomed to chucking he was accustomed to doing the thing that, that he taught me to do yeah right so when he plays bass he he plays like he's got a pick in his fingers but he doesn't so now i'm gonna hurt myself but i'm only gonna play a little <laughs> bit he plays bass like he goes 
right? Kind of strumming with the fingertips. Yeah, he he could switch from to his fingers like instantly. Like there's, it's, yeah. it was seamless. So when you hear him play those ridiculously fast, yeah. complicated riffs, it's just because he goes from this to his fingers, yeah. right? Like instantaneously. So when I started to compose for Chic. I was now unbelievably aware of Bernard's bass playing abilities. And the very first song I wrote was Everybody Dance. And yeah. when I wrote that song, which was based sort of like on pretty jazzy chords, I, I wrote... Um, and it's because of the, I wanted the, the bass. And so I had to go... Right, so yes. and I knew Bernard would kill that. <laughs> so yes. we go. Yeah. And I knew when he got to that, I always yeah. knew that in his head that that was going to be some kind of awesome, pivotal moment in the chord progression yeah. for him to like get off on. And he didn't let me down. bass playing was so outrageous on that first recording session that I wound up playing completely straight. So what I originally wrote, which was me chucking funky, I never played that until we get to the breakdown. I just go... Because his bass right. playing just dominate. <laughs> he carries it. Keep it funky. That's absolutely right. And then, of course, I mean, I'm always curious to know about Good Times, this song, because that kind of set, I mean, that was a huge moment in the evolution of rap and hip-hop first appearing, at least on the radio. Yeah. First hit song that I remember that was a monster hit, Rapper's Delight. It was later I realized, hey, that's not chic. They just got some <laughs> studio cats. So I'm not sure who played it. Right. Maybe you know who uh, copied it so that they could rap for 97 minutes over the right. top of it. I imagine back in the day, they were taking two Chic records and getting in the breakdown and maybe just keeping it going yep. for as long as it was needed in the club. But um, how did that groove come about? And obviously one of the most famous bass lines of all time from Bernard. So we had been, so by the time we evolved to writing uh, Good Times, we realized that our biggest hit records were all based on the progression one to four. Like, uh, so our first record, um, Dance, 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 Yowza, Yowza, was. Right, so we're just going F minor nine to B flat 13. And then Lafrique, our biggest record is A minor seven to D. So it's just, so now we're doing good times, we gotta go. E, we put in the key of E, okay, let's be really different yeah. now. We're going to move to E, <laughs> and we want to go from yeah. E to A. So we went, and then I go to a sus. Now, what's cool yeah. about the guitar is our restrictions, but our restrictions winds up giving us the great workarounds. So when Bernard yeah. goes to the A, I am actually going to an A. It's a sus, but I can voice it like... So I go, and it feels like I'm laying on the E. And then I go to A13. Yeah. But I'm actually still, sure, yeah. actually, I'm just doing so the, a variation. Yeah. I'm sort of doing, it's like, a, it's like an A, it's like an A sus 11 or whatever you want to call it, because it's just all fourths. Yeah. So I got you. Right at the, it's at the seventh position, you're barring the... Yep, exactly. Even though Bernard is playing. Even though the he's A. already on the. Yeah. So he goes. Yeah. Uh, I don't even know how to do it. Does something. And he goes to the A, yeah. right? And I'm still here. Yeah. 
and then catch up with him. So it just was something that was yeah. that honestly happened on the spot because Bernard was late to the session and I had taught it to the rest of the band. So we were already in there playing. So typically the way Bernard and I work yeah. is that whoever starts the song, the other person plays their part and then we develop our part after we play and sing together. So he just started playing. Yeah. And then while he was doing that, it was sounding cool to me, but I just screamed out really loud. I said, walk. Now, the reason why I screamed out walk, it's not because I was a genius. We have been trying to walk through songs like for years. We've been doing songs over and over and over again. Uh, and we even have some other songs earlier that has walking bass line. We do a song called Happy Man. And he boo 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 So he's accustomed to walking, but we never tried it on the pop hit single. So I just screamed out walk and he went into that bass line out of the clear blue sky. And at that moment, we realized something magical was happening. And I screamed out to our engineer, Bob Clear Mountain, at the time. I said, brother, make it red. Just record yeah. this. <laughs> and, and that was it. And it was just, he just came up with it on the spot. Speaking of another incredible moment, I mean, a person like you, I, it's a daunting task to interview because you don't know what to touch on. There's been so many high moments. But listeners here would love it probably if you talked about how you developed let's dance the tune i don't know if you want to touch on that real quickly and the video is great like how what did david bowie show you on that and then how did it end up okay so uh so david had said to me before we got to switzerland uh that we made a plan he said no you know i want you to do a hit album and i was like going wow a hit album like that was what i was running away from because prior to working with david i had had lots of hit albums uh, at least for a guy like me i mean i was still pretty much a journeyman when david had come into my life but still this is following as you said good times i want your love everybody dance 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 we are family he's the greatest dancer i mean single after single hit after yeah. hit um and even what we would call a minor hit uh, Norma Jean was still a gold record moving to platinum. So we, you know, every record we had done had all sold over a million, if not two or three or four or five or six. So when David came into my life, he said that he wanted a hit album. So at that point, I felt that I was charged with that responsibility and I was not going to let him down. Um, but then one morning he walks into my bedroom and he says, you know, Nile, darling, I think this is a hit. And he plays something to this effect. He goes, uh... Let's dance. Right? He's doing that. And I went, wow. whoa. I thought he was like trying to play a trick on me to see if I was like a sycophant who would go like, oh, Bowie, that's really great, David. So I actually called a couple of mutual friends and said, you know, would David do this? Would he play a trick on me? Because he told me like, he wanted hits and now he's playing what sounds like a folk song to me. Not that folk songs aren't hits, but we right. were now moving into the 80s, into the new romantic era and stuff was grooving and Frankie goes to Hollywood and all those kinds of records would come out. So his friends assured me that he wasn't playing a trick on me. So David and I, when we first met, uh, we never really talked about pop music. All we talked about was jazz. And I knew that he had a deep knowledge of jazz, a really deep knowledge. So I knew that he understood the vernacular. So I asked him, I said, hey, David, do you mind if I do an arrangement on that song? And he said, oh, sure. And that was cool. That's all I needed. <laughs> so I then started working on it. And I did uh, the moving voice thing, and I, but, but I did it a little differently. I went. And then, um, so instead of playing the second chord as, a, as an F, what I did was I played it sort of like an F. I, it was an F, really. But I put it there. So I went. And I kept the third in the bass. 
but that wasn't cool. So then I went, and I said, oh my God, I did a, I did a minor 13 chord. That was like really cool. And then I went to the F and I was like, holy cow, I got a progression. So I went. And then that was still sounding dark. So I moved it up to B flat and went. But that was still too dark. So then I said, hell, let me put the whole thing up an octave. And I went. And then played the minor 13 here. And then I put the, the, the six chord. So the end result. So what the benefit of that, so not only did we have hip jazz chords, but we had super smooth voice leading, which basically was just. you add the bass to it it's so incredibly funky with huge drum sound but the other thing is you've got a wonderful sort of ping pong delay and to put on our guitar right. key guitar geeks hat here i assume you probably added that in post on the at the desk maybe or well where, what is so, that delay so here's what happened man this is so funny so david and i were in the lounge and bob clear mountain the way that we would do our sessions every day I got to put this in context. So R&B records, let's just call it black records, <laughs> black people's okay. records, we had much s smaller budgets than the rock bands would have. So typically we would make our records in eight hour sessions in a day. So we would just book eight hours and then leave. And then every day we'd have to start again. And, you know, we didn't get to block out the studio and just like have it for a month or two or three or four. We never did that. Uh, I never blocked out a studio until I did the Duran Duran album, Notorious. Every other record I made, including Like a Virgin, everything was eight hour sessions. And it was all done like black records. And we finished the albums in like a couple of weeks. Let's Dance was done in 17 days, start to finish. Everything mixed, Stevie Ray Vaughan solos, David's vocals, background, everything, horn arrangements. I did all that stuff. Yeah. And, and it was done in 17 days. So... David and I would typically sit in the, the lounge and we'd discuss what we were doing that day while Bob Clearmount is setting up to get the sound to record. So we just happened to walk in when he was getting the delay times for the different instruments that he was going to put delays on just to have nice, a nice effect. But when we walked in, he was doing them all at the same time on the drums. And we went, what the hell is that? And it was like, whoa, that's amazing. Keep that. So at that point, I had been sort of running away from the whole disco sucks thing. So if you hear the yeah. original demo of Let's Dance, which I think is online somewhere now, you can hear what I really did, the first arrangement of it, where I'm actually playing funky. But because I was trying to run away from the chucking sound and I heard these great delays, I realized that if I just play doing all upstrokes, yeah. which gave it a different thing. So it, it really accentuated the voice leading. And the, and Bob's delays would kick in and I go. <laughs> and it winds up going. <laughs> you know what I mean? And the delays are just. Um, you know, bouncing back and forth. And when David and I heard that, we just flipped out 
and we put it on the guitar and it was just magic it was just one of those things that we had no idea bob wasn't even expecting to do that we just walked in at that moment and heard it and said hey do it on this and that's the wonderful life of making records because yeah. it's all about the accidents that happen that wonderful moment where the person plays the wrong note and you go whoa what was that and uh we put it in the arrangement yep and then you're like here you go dave there's your hit <laughs> boom <laughs> well i knew i knew it was a hit the funky way because if you listen to the demo that was me trying to convince david that my arrangement of it was the way that it should be instead of the dong 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 instead of doing it that way so if you listen to the arrangement you hear how happy david was he was just so open-minded at that point because we were doing the demo with uh some jazz musicians in switzerland and we were at queen's studio a studio called mountain and um he just was happy being around really sophisticated people who could read the charts and you know he just loved that vibe so he knew something was going to happen but he didn't know what was going to happen and trust me neither did i i wrote it and i had a good idea of what the chart sounded like because i could play it but i didn't know if the jazz guys would groove the right way i didn't know what would happen cause i didn't even know these guys names <laughs> so we get and when you hear this demo of the way that i originally did it and you hear somebody scream and go, "Woo, that's me, not David. Even though David is singing, I'm the one who screams because the groove worked within like four bars. I realized that, uh-oh, now this is right. And you can hear David singing all along the way and finally by the end it starts to really sound like the let's dance that we know and he's doing those riffs that he would then incorporate into the song that we would wind up doing once we got back to new york that's it that's that's it got it <laughs> got it now was stevie ray vaughn tripping when he's like what am i doing here with this british glam rock superstar and this funk producer I use the word funk to describe that's okay any music that has groove whether it's <laughs> hard rock or r&b and here i here i am from texas playing in new york what was it like when he walked in the room so this was really one of the greatest moments of a first meet so my first meeting with bowie was incredible and it led to us doing let's dance my first meeting with stevie ray vaughn was like David, why don't we just call Albert King? Because I'd never heard of Stevie Ray Vaughan, right? I knew Jimmy Vaughan from the Fabulous Thunderbirds, but I didn't know he had a brother, right? I had no idea. So when Stevie showed up, and he, and he just, the first thing he plays on Let's Dance is just one single note, one B flat. Like, so he just goes, and that's it. I'm like, what? And it sounded so Albert King-like. I kept thinking, well, David, if you want to hit, wouldn't it be cooler if we had Albert King? And mm -hmm. so that was the first meeting. But then he starts to get into it and he develops it a little more. And then he just keeps playing and it's just brilliant. But still, I'm not like all blown away. But then we do China Girl. <laughs> and then I go, okay, now I see why you call this guy. All the while, Stevie now is in the company of me and all my musicians, because on that album, there's no one on that record that David hired. Like he didn't, he didn't know Omar Hakim, he didn't know Tony Thompson, he doesn't know Carmine Rojas, he doesn't know Rob Sabino, they're all my guys. So the only person that he knew was Stevie Ray Vaughan, so he couldn't wait in a strange way for Stevie to get there, because that was the one comrade that he sort of could have because these were just all my guys doing what I have them do. But what was really awesome about Stevie is that I guess he was into the whole camaraderie of bands, 
right? He was into that. So he came in, he saw how close we all were, and he did the coolest thing ever. He had a shipment of barbecue ribs shipped up from Austin, Texas, from a joint called Sam's Barbecue. Now, this is before yeah. FedEx and all that kind of stuff. So I don't even know how he pulled this off. But when, uh, when the, the barbecue ribs arrived, they were, I guess, sort of packed in uh, uh, hot ice or something like that. But they also came with a calendar of Sam's, from Sam's Barbecue. And it had the, the serving, the women who worked at Sam's Barbecue. And one of them was named Irma. And uh, somehow there was a little picture of me as a baby floating around and they cut my little face out and stuck it on Irma's head. <laughs> and from that point on, everybody called me Niall Irma. So I was Niall Irma to Stevie. I was Niall Irma to everybody on the date. And it formed a bond that lasted up until until he passed away, you know, because, you know, I did the final record with him. As a matter of fact, if you go to my uh, Instagram post today, you'll see something that I didn't even remember I did that I actually sang TikTok. I sang the demo to TikTok because Jimmy Vaughn and I wrote it while Stevie was away gigging with Double Trouble. Yeah, I saw one of those posts, but you didn't actually play the tape. It was a shorter version. Yeah, I, did, I didn't play it because I, I yeah. you know, I just said, holy cow, look at this. I forgot all, if, like I said, if a person had asked me, hey, now, did you sing the demo to TikTok? I would have said, no, of course not. I wrote the song, I co-wrote it, but I didn't sing it. And I realized, holy cow, I sang it and I probably played it the, we we probably already cut the track and I saw my guys um, sort of chiming in I didn't have a long time but I saw two of the guys who were on the record saying oh my god I totally forgot about that and the other one said yeah and if you remember yeah. it actually started with a clock ticking TikTok star and it was like whoa I, I he says I have the original chart that Rich sort of scribbled out after Jimmy and I wrote the tune do you know how many people across the world today are waiting for those reels to start turning and they just don't want to hear the hear the track no i i'll i'll play it uh but i gotta so um I know you gotta clear it. yeah i gotta go around. back to my locker and get it i left it in my locker so, so that that post was a follow-up to a post i made yesterday because i i um i said that i was now going to start to to uh you know sell and donate my my cars and my guitar collection which is pretty vast um to people who can play these instruments because I feel like I'm just hoarding and it and it feels wrong. These are incredible instruments. And I and I was talking to Philippe Sace last night, um, a gentleman that I write with a lot, and I said, you know, I wanna be sort of like that person who there's some young virtuoso who can't afford a Stradivarius and you say, Okay, here you can play this violin for the next five years because I have these amazing, ridiculous guitars that, you know, you know, most people can't afford to buy. So, you know, some people who are real collectors and have museums and collections will probably be very interested in, in these guitars because they pretty know I have them. Like, you know, once you get to that level, everybody sort of knows. <laughs> I just want to say I've seen your car collection, which you're selling, which is staggering. I can only imagine what your guitar collection is like. Well, my, my car collection is not that staggering. It's just that what I have are unique ones so the what happened was yesterday when i was at the the garage what i was doing was i was actually saying goodbye to my first car that i sold right because somebody you know like jumped on it and said they wanted it so i was actually going to say goodbye but while i was there my other some of my other cars are there but not all of those are mine so so you don't see all of mine uh, just because I was just really saying goodbye to my Range Rover and you didn't really get, I didn't let the shot go all the way to the end because it was just too long. Oh, uh, yeah. But so I've I been cut to, it I've off. I've been to Sammy Hagar's garage. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, it's just, it's just I'm at a point in my life where I'm starting to reevaluate that whole concept of, of collecting because now I'm like hoarding. I'm not collecting. Like nobody gets a chance to see anything. Nobody gets a chance to play it. And that's not right. This, these guitars and these cars should be driven. I, I drove a lot. And, you know, I mean, when I started driving, no one in New York City had a car. Like, and not only did I have a car, I had lots of cars. And I had, you know, Lamborghinis and Maseratis and Bernardette Ferraris. And, you know, we were like, you know, we had like serious cars for people 
from a culture where nobody had a car. We had like ridiculous cars. There's just nothing like driving a car in California compared to the East Coast. Oh, yeah. so check this out. So the, the, <laughs> the next car that I will probably put up for sale, uh, you you just, man, you're so cool how you hit the nail on the head, man. Um, so the next car I bought right before I did the film Coming to America, and I knew that I was going to be out in California for a while because I was scoring while they were actually shooting the film. So I had my little parking spot at Paramount there with my name and the whole bit. So I had my car shipped to L.A. because that was an environment where I knew people would go like, whoa, he's got that. Whoa, he's got that. You know, it's, you know, when you're a kid, you're sort of like all into the whole, you know, like, wow, check me out. So I had my car shipped out to L.A. when I did Coming to America. And I put like a gazillion miles on it because in L.A. everybody drives everywhere. So I did that film and I did another film right behind it. So I did like a couple of films in a row. And then I worked with uh, a few artists. I did um, um, David Lee Roth and was uh, attempting to work with Paula Abdul and she didn't show up at the studio. But that's another story. <laughs> yeah. What car was that? Huh? What car was that? So I'm not going to reveal it now. I'm going to let you see it because oh, it's, okay. it's a drop dead. It's only nine in the world like this. It's drop dead. Um, uh, um, uh, well, it, I'll yeah, just so, say. So follow your Instagram, basically, is what you're saying. At some point, you'll put it up there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's a, we did a film. So yesterday, what I was doing, I was actually going to the garage to do a film about that car because it's so incredibly special. Like I said, there are only nine in the world like that but i had already sold the the range rover so i was saying goodbye to the range rover but really going to make a film about the other car and i was just sort of uh, you know musing to myself why i was doing this that i was doing it so that other people can enjoy it you know in today's world man we i call like uber i don't really drive much anymore um and these cars are just so amazing and beautiful and unique and the guitars are especially incredible that I could give them another life. Like they had a life before me, but I pursued these guitars because of the life that they had before me. So I could say that, oh, I got Chuck Berry's this and I got, oh, I got so-and-so's that and I got this one's that. So what, what are some that. of the what are some of the highlights of the guitar collection? Like, you know, is there a Chuck Berry guitar and other stuff? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I have, uh, yeah. So, you know, before Chuck Berry was known for the, the for the 335, um, you know, all the guitar players basically were playing big box jazz guitars. Um, and so I met his son while we were on the road gigging with Cher. So I set up a meeting with him and I said, look, you know, do you remember any time in your father's life? Because when I bought this guitar at auction, Somebody said to me that this was actually Chuck Berry's guitar and I got the paperwork and blah, blah, blah. Uh, can you confirm that? And the son said, oh, yeah, yeah. He used to play those kinds of guitars before, you know, the ES-335. So um, that guitar is a Zephyr Regent and it's pretty amazing. And um, and I have, you know, D'Angelico's, a lot of D'Angelico's. Uh, a lot of Martins, Diocristos. I have amazing Les Pauls. I have more Fender Strats than you can imagine because after I got the Hitmaker, which was completely an accident that I got such an amazing, unique guitar, I kept trying to pursue that sound. I kept thinking that it was something that was inherent in every Strat. <laughs> so I just started buying Strats after Strat going, damn it, can I get another one that sounds like this? Can I get another one that sounds like this? And I didn't realize, and I should have, I should have thought it through, but I didn't realize that a lot of it had to do with body mass. A lot of it had to do with my own, um, well, most of it with body mass, but also the, the, the composition of that particular lot of wood and all of these things that I never thought about. I just, I, I don't know. You know, sometimes logic goes away and <laughs> we just go, it's a strat. So all strats must do that. But I could never find another one to do that. So when I finally went to the custom shop and we took it apart and analyzed it, they, they came up with a theory that was closer than anything that I could think of and anything that the records would 
justify. And it seemed like the most sound explanation for why that guitar sounds so unique. And so we went with that idea because it makes the most sense. It's just like anything in science. You know, you have a theorem and that becomes what is the fact, so to speak, until you disprove it. So until it's disproven, I'm going with that because it makes a hell of a lot of sense because I can't find another one. (laughs) And I have tried. Yeah. Wow. Well, incredible career you've had. And of course, I mentioned that you're one of, I think I mentioned, but you're one of my two favorite guitar players of all time. I really thank you for that because that's, I, oh, yeah. my, my style for me, I, I, it's funny, man. I really don't feel like I play for myself. I feel like I play for other people. Um, and to hear somebody say that makes me incredibly humble and almost teary-eyed because that's well, what I've always wanted to do is just play for other people. Well, the thing I love is the groove and the other guy talk about getting teary-eyed here there's another guy who had an incredible groove eddie van halen yeah did you know eddie or do you have anything reflections i mean you met everybody jimmy carter and bono and all these people do you what do you have to add right now that's less than a week since eddie died or probably exactly a week yeah so i only met eddie once i went to his house so i met eddie and valerie at the time and it was so loving and so wonderful. I think at that time, if I remember correctly, I think I was doing something with Dweezil Zappa. And I'm not really sure how I got invited to Eddie's house, or I may have been doing the David Lee Roth solo record that I did with him. And so I really, honestly, unfortunately, like, I don't know why <laughs> Eddie Van Halen invited me to his house. Um, right. But I, all I remember is me there, and it, was, it really felt like a family setting with he and his wife, and, and we're just kicking it. We're just talking yeah. and just being like people who respect each other and, and just really appreciates what the other person does. Like, I don't know if we jammed. I'm really being honest. I don't know if right. he said, like, hey, man, let's jam a bit. I don't know if any of that happened. The feeling that I remember is just feeling like for one day I became part of his family and we just kicked it like in the kitchen and we were just talking and just a person who I respected like to the, you know, like the highest order. I mean, I just thought Eddie Van Halen was like ridiculous as a musician well, and he was know, just so, so cool as a person. Now we're in the middle of doing a cover story. Maybe you could comment, I can't think of anyone better to, on his groove. Obviously people think of him as hard rock arena god guitar player. Which he is. <laughs> which he of course was, is. But um, do, you, do, you ever, do you have anything you notice about his groove or his, his right hand? So, so think about this, all, all the guitar players that we love, and, and, I, and I, maybe I'm maybe this is not a fact, but I think it's a fact. All the guitar players that we love that can really rip, really rip, they all are super groove conscious. They're like when I met Steve Ray Vaughan, like I said, the, his first impression was my first impression was like, okay, why don't we call Albert King? My next impression was like, Jesus Christ, this guy can rip. My third impression was like, oh my God, he's one of the best players I've ever heard. Everybody that I've ever met and anybody that I've ever played with, and I'm talking, I mean, look at the guys I've played with. Jeff Beck, Steve Vai, um, John Mayer, like all all these guys, they they have an incredible sense of groove, an incredible sense of funk. They all love Hendrix. They all love Ike Turner. They all love love these funky guys, every, every one of them. So I don't know any guitar player that's not a serious player that isn't a great groove artist because if you can't groove it doesn't mean anything if you can just shred and rip it's like lame that's like to me that sucks i want a person who plays in the pocket when i when i did uh halo 2 with steve vai boy talk about being in the pocket it was like it was just magic. We just sat down in the studio. We kicked it together. And he's like going, you know, nah, this is so amazing. Like he he was on tour. 
I think this is with when he was out with Ingve, uh, and I think it was maybe Satriani. I'm not sure. It was like a three guitar player kind of thing. It's all three rippers, you know, like like monsters. And he ditched his sound check to come over and do Halo with me. And it was just like from that moment on, lifelong friends. Love Steve. He calls me and he says, you know, now I've been playing guitar all my life. And it's the only time that my son ever said like, hey, man, I'm all proud of my dad. Because when they went to buy Halo, <laughs> he said, that's my dad playing on the soundtrack. I love that kind of story, yeah. Um, there's this band called Umphreys McGee, jam band. Mm -hmm. And one day, um, they, I was talking to them, these guys from Chicago, very popular amongst college kid jam band fans. And they're like, yeah, one time Huey Lewis sat in with us. And we're like, great. But we're like, why do you want to sit in with us? And they're like, oh, well, because my son loves you guys. Right, right, right. <laughs> Just wants to impress his son. Right. It's uh, it's like, and you go, uh, but you're Steve Vai, like you're like insane, and he's like, no man, but my son is like a video game fanatic, and he can't believe that his dad just did Halo. Fantastic. Well, it's been great talking to you. Um, I could keep you here all day, but I probably shouldn't. I just thank you. What's next on the, on the stove? What's on the front burner, record wise? So I think from the email that I got a few hours ago that the record I did last night, um they're going to give me the thumbs up on um he the he said wow i love the solo you played at the end maybe that's making me rethink the whole song and i'm like no 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 <laughs> i played the solo because you stopped the lead vocal and i thought the melody was so great i wanted to keep it going um but i'll see if that's what i hope he <laughs> believes so if that uh is wrapped then um the next project that I'm slated to do, which I've started to do pre-production on, um, it's going to sound weird, but you understand because my career is sort of like it's all over the map. So I guess these are the next three projects in a row. Uh, I'm doing um, writing um, symphonic piece for the 150th anniversary of the Royal Albert Hall for the Royal Philharmonic, which is a <laughs> blast. Uh, I've just been working on... Um, Coming to America with Burna Boy and uh, Andrew Watt, who's ridiculous guitar, feeling of ridiculous guitar players who can groove. Um, so that's right. been going great. And then uh, if everything keeps playing out the way it's playing out, I will start Adina Menzel's next album, like in a few days. And then after that, I will hopefully go uh, to my home base now, which is Abbey Road, uh, to start the Zootons album, which... Uh, they're coming, they're getting back together, which like to me is like a sort of a big deal. <laughs> like they haven't made a record yeah. for like 15 or 16 years or something. So, uh, you know, by the way, I'm sort of like, I'm not like a jam band aficionado, but I've worked with a few jam bands. I, you know, was in that scene for a bit. I grew up, you know, sort of pretty hippied out. So all my roommates were deadheads and stuff. And, you know, like I, I produced, you know, strange folk and, you know, and bands like that. And so, you well, know, it takes me six months to do one song and you put out an album like every six weeks. So it's very inspiring and inspiring as always. Thank you for a lifetime of inspiration. No joke and uh, no exaggeration there. Thank you, so, man. Uh, it's been a yeah. real pleasure talking to you. It's been a blast. Right on. I'm sure I'll talk to you again down the road. And uh, man, keep it alive till you're a million and five. <laughs> Thank you, brother. Pleasure. No, the time is safe.